When I was a young man, oops, about 20 years ago, 30, would you accept? Oh well, let's not go there. I was told when I started preaching that you should be able to put on a postcard the outline of what you want to say. Otherwise you'll be, as the old story says, a little bit like Christopher Columbus, who when he set out didn't know where he was going, when he got there he didn't know where he was, and when he got back he didn't know where he'd been. Now, the old ones are best, aren't they, Peter? (laughs) That's always the danger. So basically, as we look at Psalm 90, uh, in this sixth and final of our series, um, headed uh, Living in God's Hands, three things. I hope that we will be urged to a personal commitment to lay our lives in God's hands if we haven't already done so. And if we have, then to encourage each other in the Lord's service. And to do so, we'll have a three-point fixing safety seat like children have in cars uh, for the journey uh, from Psalm 90. Living in God's hands. So the moment we talk about God, we immediately use man forms and man feelings, don't we? I mean, this psalm does. It talks of speech. It talks of God having sight. It talks of God being angry. It talks of God's indignation. Now, the whole of Scripture does that. Although God is immortal, invisible, only wise as we've sung, it's the only way we can begin to relate Uh, some understanding of God. But of course, this is affirmed by scriptures and also by Jesus, who was God who came in the flesh, God incarnate, and we saw him and he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So we begin to understand more and more of what God is like if we look at Jesus. And that's the best advice anyone could give, isn't it? If you want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. Learn about him. Well, this psalm's a little bit like standing outside a sweet shop as a child, I think, with your nose pressed against the window, and there are so many goodies, you don't really know uh, what to, to tackle. So perhaps it would be better, because the preacher's great challenge, I always feel, is what to leave out. And that was another bit of early advice, you know, decide when you've done your practice, your preparation, what to leave out. It's very hard. Anyone will tell you that who tries to preach. So perhaps it would be better a chemist's shop. So we look into a chemist's shop with all the various uh, medications and God is the great, the divine dispenser. He knows what we need and all I can do as a preacher or Peter can do is to do the preparation and feel a sense of these are the things that God who knows what we need wants to bring to our hearts. So, Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses the man of God. And Moses was the messenger. He was a prophet. In Exodus 20, when we had the Ten Ten Commandments given, at the beginning it said, God spake all these words. And at the end, the people said, because they were frightened, speak to us yourself. Moses was the go-between. And Jesus, of course, uh, in Luke 24, affirms Moses as a spokesman man for God. But he faced, as we do, 
There's the God in eternity that this psalm talks about and we who are on earth. Mere pinheads, mere pixels in the majesty of the universe. So I want to bring you, if I may, the three biblical truths that seem to stand out to me as I've prepared about God's hands. The child seat with the three-point safety fixing. Verses 1 and 2, which our service commenced with, they are eternal hands. God is eternal. He is, this psalm says, from everlasting to everlasting. If you have the timeline of creation, before there is infinity, afterwards there is infinity, and there is the past, the present and the future, and before it all and after it all, God was there, will be there. It's almost impossible to grasp, isn't it? But that's what it says. Before the mountains or the molecules were born, before the dinosaurs roamed, before animals and people walked on the earth, the all-knowing, the all-powerful, sovereign God was there, and after time is no more, for time is a creation of God, when there's a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness, God will be there and his people will be with him. Now these are the sort of things that we say, and they sound grand, and they are, they're wonderful, but we, we feel sometimes we can touch them, but we can't grasp them. You know, it's a bit like, you know, in a room and someone says, can you reach the ceiling? And you, you reach up and somehow you, you stand on your toes and you can, you can just about get a finger on the ceiling. You touch it, but you can't hold it. It's the skies proclaiming the work of his hands. Creation being God's testimony, as Paul says. Or as Isaiah says, the Lord is the everlasting God. His understanding no one can fathom. And science is finding out how God usually works, isn't it? So it's not enough. We need revelation. Otherwise we become captive to our own ideas. Wishful thinking. We become adrift. And God becomes a sort of divine Father Christmas. I was with someone the other day and they got some news they didn't like and they looked up and said... God, you've let me down. Yes, you see, you know, lucky dip. God made in our image instead of us made in his. But Moses had found out something very special and precious about God. Verses 1 and 2 still. The last word, God, generally it would be true to say we're all in God's hands. Everybody, everything is in God's hands because this is all of creation. We're part of it. But the wonderful, special thing is the first word the psalm starts off with, Lord. Which specifically speaks of a personal relationship. And here, the communication is in prayer. Earlier in Exodus, God had said to Moses, this is my name forever, Lord. And Moses sees the Lord as his eternal dwelling place. His eternal security. Constant, it says, throughout. Not a God who comes and departs and comes and departs and oscillates like that but throughout, not spasmodic, not moody, but consistent 
and trustworthy. So he sees that God is not only all-knowing and all-powerful, but ever-present. Note verse 8 when it talks of your presence. Jeremiah expresses it beautifully. Am I only a God nearby and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him? Do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. And Jesus, at the point of death, says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Earlier, he'd quoted the Psalm 22 when he said, Lord, why have you forsaken me? And yet you've got this sort of tension, a sense of God being far away, and yet a father to whom he can commit his spirit. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, the psalm continues, from my words of groaning? And perhaps you and I feel like that at times. We know God is there, but he just feels distant. Why have you forsaken me? But, nevertheless, into your hands I commit my spirit, this situation, whatever it may be. And the immediate, vital and personal challenge which undergirds this whole psalm is this. Have I placed my, my life in God's eternal hands? And if I have, is it echoed, this prayer, into your hands? Is it echoed each day of my life? I read a testimony just uh, a couple of weeks ago and the man was saying that he felt that his testimony was a bit like being on a tandem. Uh, He realised that he was running his life. He was the one in the front and and God was somehow with him behind. Uh, But somehow, he said, he realised at some point that the two had changed. Uh, God was on the front and he was on the back. Um, Now perhaps... Some conversions are like this. We don't quite know when our lives have been committed into God's hands, but we know now that they are. For other people, it's a case of getting off, changing places, and away we go with Jesus in charge and uh, our lives committed into his eternal hands. Verses 3 to 12 lead us to the second. Uh, God's guiding hands. Verse 12... Teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. There's the prayer. Lord, teach us wisdom. A wisdom that recognises in verse 11 the fear that is due to God. Blessed is the man who finds wisdom, says the writer of Proverbs. And going back to Exodus 20 that we mentioned earlier, uh, Moses said to the people when they said, no, 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 um, I know you want me to do it, to be God's mouthpiece, but don't be afraid. That's not the reason why I'm bringing you this. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. And it is fools, isn't it, who despise the wisdom of God 
and the discipline of God. His guiding hands as he guides us into a proper fear and respect as we bow down before our maker. And he does it in several ways. He guides us in this psalm by contrast. First of all, God is eternal. What are we? We're dust. Chemically true, I think. In verse 3, we're grass. Fresh and green, like all of you, at the start, and old and withered like me, towards the end. But that's true, isn't it? It's the way life goes. That's the comparison. God, eternal, we, frail and time-bound, with our watches, with our time-frames, with that horrible expression, I have a window for you in my diary. Seventy plus? And we fly away? I'm on, I'm on borrowed time, I tell you. And one day, well, will we fly away? Yes. Verse 10, that's what it says. Well, Moses kept going for a long time. He was 120. Didn't start his ministry to the last 40 years of his life, really, I suppose. And it says that his eye wasn't dim in the authorised version, nor his natural force abated. Now, I never know. I wondered what that meant as a child, as a young boy, when my hormones were going mad. What does it mean? His natural force was not abated. At that? I don't know. Uh, it, his strength must have gone, wasn't it? Because he died. Anyway, I'll leave you to work that one out. Ask the pastor, he'll tell you what it means. But I can't imagine Moses going around, this is what God said, and by the way, my natural force is not abated. Can you? Who knows? But there's Moses. That's the contrast, isn't it? Moses, uh, like us, just an ordinary man who's going to go to dust, and he is dust, and God who is eternal. So what does this teach us? It teaches us to face our mortality, doesn't it? It teaches us to seize the moment when God guides us to do something, that we do it. That we learn from our failures. And I have one picture in my mind, some of you know me well, know that this is like a photograph in my mind. When I was in the RAF and I was unwell and I was in a hospital bed in, in the RAF and the chap was brought in next to me, an older, an older serviceman, and uh, lights out, lights out, when lights are out, lights are out. And I just felt this strong, compel, compelling, almost a voice which said, speak to Jock about me. And I didn't. And he died. And I'll tell you, I can see now a picture in my mind of those trousers of his hanging up by his bed. And I resolved then, I will try with God's help that if he tells me to do something, I will try and learn from that terrible failure and I will try to do it. I will try to follow the Lord Jesus with an authentic Christian life. Because God has put eternity into all of our hearts, hasn't he? And we do so much in this world, it seems to suppress it and try and ignore it, but it's there. So his guidance comes through 
a comparison, doesn't it? That contrast between him and us, that surely helps us. The eternal God. But it also comes because we know our failings through confession. And the Bible consistently teaches the bad news that we are dust and we are doomed as part of a defiled, fragile and fading creation. Someone said men hardly ever realise the ultimate relationship between mortality and sin. And verse 11 gives us this question, who knows the power of your anger, an anger generated by our sinfulness against his holiness? I think the answer must be those who fear the Lord begin to understand that we are part of what the old fathers called the fallen world. Surely we begin to realise that self the self-harm caused by our iniquities, the wrong things of which we are implicitly aware, the personal and social damage that is caused by secret sins, even sins, some of them being that we don't even know we've committed perhaps. And Tim, when he was speaking the other day, you you gave this little uh, thing about sin, you know, with the young people. One was... You know, that you are shove off God, I don't, I'm in charge, wasn't it? And I, you're not wanted, you're not needed, you're not, I'm not interested. And I was interested to, to, to read uh, in the prayer letter following the um, mission to overseas students of the, of the young Spanish girl who was very, very interested in Christianity but offended at the idea that she's a sinful person. But we need to accept that we are because we share the fallenness of this world. Lord, teach us to number our days aright that we may gain a heart of wisdom. We get the guidance uh, from God also by the gift of a different perspective. Surely when we see who God is and what we are, we have our eyes open. We see God committed to us and we to him. That we're no longer rooted in a human lifespan. We see that there is eternal life. We're part of God's eternal plan. We're free to live because Jesus lives and we live with him and he will guide us to his Father's eternal kingdom. Now, we all may be committed into his guiding hands. Everything can be. We can commit our family, we can commit our friends, we can commit our fears, we can commit, Josh, our finances. We can commit our future into his hands. As the old hymn says, peace, perfect peace. Our future all unknown, question mark. Jesus we know, and he's on the throne. Thirdly and finally, eternal hands, Guiding hands, verses 13 to 17, working hands. And I believe this verse 17, I'll read it, can be a prayer for our weekend together. May the favour of the Lord, our God, rest upon us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Note, please, 
The work of our hands is as, verses 13 and 16, as servants. It's not our plans. It's the work of his hands. It's his deeds. Jesus was asked the question, after he had fed the 5,000 and walked on the water, oh, what must we do to do the works God requires? Shall we do some wonderful things? And Jesus said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. That's it. Our work and his work is to point people to Jesus who came not to condemn the world but to save it. That's the Lord's work and that's our work. Now, to do it. I think we need a good dose of realism. Verse 13 makes it absolutely clear that it's tough. Relent, O Lord, how long? Now, it seems to me that Moses is saying, take the pressure off. How long have we got? And that's an inevitable tension that we have to live with and work with. The eternal and the transient pulling upon us. The unchanging God and our changing world. That's the first bit of realism. Don't think it's an easy option. The second bit of realism is that we're only servants, as Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians 3. We are sinners as well, but we're only servants. We are his servants. It's not our work, it's his. Obvious statement, but sometimes we might lose sight of that. And the other dose of realism is that we only have today. R.E.F. Nimrod takes off. Afghanistan, 14 killed as it crashes. I've worked with the military for many, many years. I can't remember a Nimrod crashing. Very reliable aircraft. We only have today. A good friend of ours, those of us who are older, will remember of the church, Stephen English, tells the story of the petrol station that had the sign outside, free petrol tomorrow. Chap goes to fill his car up. Oh, I'll come back tomorrow. Comes back tomorrow. Free petrol tomorrow. It's obvious, isn't it? You never get it. But always we think that there's something better tomorrow. And I appreciate your prayer. You picked that up, Tim, didn't you? You you said about where we are now is where God wants us to be. So important, if I may say, without uh, appearing patronising to the younger folk, where you are is God wants you to be now. You've got to consider that he's moving you somewhere else, but where you are now, don't wait to serve him. Get on with it. I think that applies to all of us. Where we are is where we should be. We get on and we do it. And if God wants us somewhere else, we go there. There's an old 
chap said to me when I was a young, I was probably like me, an old chap then, said to me, you you can't uh, steer a moving car, a a, a stationary car, sorry. You can't steer a stationary car. You've got to be moving. And if you're moving, then you can be put in the right direction. So, you know, we're moving with God, doing something now, not just sat on our bottoms waiting for God to give us a kick and, and say, do this. Get on with it. That's the thing. We only have today. And to do it, we not only need this dose of realism, but I felt reading this psalm, we need proper rest. If we live in a state of rush, and I try and hold on to this, it's an acrostic, we may make rash decisions We may underachieve. We will starve our souls. And we'll probably have a heavy heart. Now, I'm not naive enough to think that life isn't busy. I mean, dear Paul, who was stood up here telling us about the weekend, was saying before that he was called out at half past four to operate on a three-year-old child in an emergency. Of course we are busy, of course. But... It is vital that somehow, and your, Peter, your um, last to prayer notes said, you know, with work must come rest, I think, to, to quote you. And I was talking to my GP the other day. I, whenever I go and see her, we usually have a little Christian chat as well, and we encourage each other, I hope. And she was saying about the word, world, and I said to her, well, the conclusion I've come to is this, in my Christian life, that we must look at the word before we look at the world. And you know, she went, oh, thank you. I said, well, I understand. You know, you get all people with their problems coming to you and I'm probably one of them. But isn't that true, friends? If our vision will be blinded if we keep looking at the world and all the things that are going, look at the word first, we see it in perspective and we begin to rest in the Lord the eternal Lord, to trust in his unfailing love, his resources, his compassion, his guidance, and they reveal God's continuous creating activity in our lives and in his church worldwide. I read uh, a little while ago in a little devotional book, this man wrote, think of the enormous leisure of God. He's never in a hurry. And that grasped me. Of course, eternity. A thousand years is but a day. What would take us a thousand years, he can do in a day. I mean, the whole thing, it's a different perspective altogether. God is never in a hurry. And then we need to live that godly life. To do it, we need realism. We need rest. But if we're to do God's work, we need to live godly lives. Easy to say. Verse 17, his favour. May his favour rest upon us. His beauty, it says at the bottom of the Bible, doesn't it? little footnote. His graciousness. May it rest upon us. 
and that will give us a source of proper rest and godly example. And people will then begin to recognise the faith and the works that we're seeking to express and God's work will be established. We won't have any need to try and manipulate blessing because God will establish his work. And we will be able to say with Isaiah, all that we have accomplished, you have done for us. Let's pray.